Welcome to the podcast for Great Figures of the New Testament, a Sunday school series offered at the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. My name is Ryan Bonfilio, and I'm the Stembler Scholar and host of this podcast series. Session 7, The Pharisees and Sadducees. The Roman historian Josephus names the Pharisees and Sadducees as two of the major Jewish movements in the first century CE, along with the Essenes and the so-called Fourth Philosophy. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees tend to get bad press in the New Testament. Members of these sects seem to constantly serve as foils to Jesus and the disciples. They are known for challenging Jesus about matters related to the Sabbath, dietary laws, the resurrection, and a number of other important theological and practical matters. They also try to trip Jesus up with interpretive minutiae and set traps to undermine his teaching. The Pharisees in particular are considered to be the archetype of legalism and self-righteousness in religious attitude and practice. According to one definition from a popular New Testament textbook, the Pharisee is one who is strict in doctrine and ritual without a sense of piety laying stress on the outward show of religion and morality. They are hypocritical, formal, and self-righteous. This understanding of what a Pharisee is has also worked its way into modern, everyday English. The adjective pharisaical now refers to anyone who is marked by hypocritical, censorious self-righteousness. Negative stereotypes about the Sadducees are only slightly less ingrained. To my knowledge, there is no term compatible to pharisaical, like sadduceical or sadducean, that is used in modern English to negatively characterize a certain religious person. Nevertheless, the Sadducees are involved in the New Testament in the persecution of the, of the apostles in the book of Acts, and they might well have something to do with the condemnation of Jesus in the gospel narratives. In popular Christian understandings, There is some sense that the Pharisees and Sadducees are distinct groups, and yet, in many circles, they are often treated as somewhat interchangeable or synonymous entities. This, at some level, is understandable. In six of the nine references to the Sadducees in the Gospels, their name is coupled with the Pharisees, so we typically hear always about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those two groups combined together. In Matthew 3, 7, for instance, when the Pharisees and Sadducees come to the Jordan to be baptized by John, John the Baptist refers to them both as, quote, a brood of vipers, without making a distinction between one group and the, and the other. And in Matthew 16, Jesus warns his disciples about, quote, the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, once again without making any distinction between the two groups. In either case, then, our overriding sense among Uh, in Christian circles, is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees together are symbols of empty religiosity, legalism, hypocriticalness, and self-righteousness. They are directly opposed to the heart of the gospel and Jesus' message. They are villains, if you will, in the New Testament. They offer us negative objects lessons, showing us what not to do and what not to believe. This, by and large, is the general sense of what the Pharisees and Sadducees are like, historically and in the pages of our New Testament. But the question we must ask in this session is this. 
Does this understanding of what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are like, does it give us an accurate historical portrait of these figures? Or rather, is this understanding something like a caricature? Now, if you recall, a caricature is an artistic drawing that intentionally misrepresents certain features, or it exaggerates negative qualities and minimizes positive qualities. Growing up at the New Jersey Shore, my brother and I could go down to the boardwalk, and for a couple dollars, you could pay an artist to make a caricature of you. And caricatures, at least at the New Jersey Shore, were quite fun because they did exaggerate features you might not want exaggerated, and they might have minimized other features such that the end drawing was somewhat humorous. Now, our caricature is humorous and all well and good only if we remember that there is an actual true portrait that differs from the caricature. Caricatures are dangerous and really not all that funny when the caricature replaces the true portrait. That is, that we begin to think of the caricature as the way someone or something actually looks or actually is like. And so the question then again for this session is, does this, stare, does this idea of the Pharisees and Sadducees as symbols of empty religiosity, legalism, hypocriticalness, and self-righteousness, is that actually a portrait of who these figures were, or is it a mere caricature based in stereotypes and misunderstandings about these historical figures? The way I want to get at that question is from two angles. First, I want to ask, does this does this sense of what the Pharisees and Sadducees are like, does it match what we can know about the Pharisees and Sadducees from non-biblical historical sources? That is to say, do these figures get bad press outside of the New Testament just as they do inside the New Testament? And then second, I want to ask, does the picture that we have in mind about what the Pharisees and Sadducees are like, does it truly match how they are portrayed in the New Testament? Now, to be sure, these figures are often cast in negative light. But is it always as bad as we think? Do we, intentionally or unintentionally, reinforce the caricature of the Pharisees and Sadducees as villains through our interpretations and sometimes at the expense of a careful reading of the New Testament itself? So first, let's turn to the issue of non-historical, excuse me, non-biblical historical sources for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Outside of the New Testament, there are three main sources for understanding the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's the writings of the Roman Jewish historian Josephus. There's the writings of early rabbinical Judaism in the form of the Talmud and the Mishnah. And then there's also the writings of the Qumran community, known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Each of these three historical sources provide helpful information about who these, uh, about the origins and nature of these two particular groups. But for each, we must exercise some caution, for they are, they are not ideal historical source documents. Josephus, for instance, claims that he himself was a Pharisee, and that might make it seem like here we have a firsthand report of what the Pharisees are like. But Josephus, in his historical writings, is notoriously apologetic. And what I mean by that is he's always interested in casting a positive light on what the Jews are like, and really what he is like, in front of his Roman audience. And so it's curious that Josephus never mentions that he's a Pharisee until very, very late in his career, until one of his last books. And then he finds it convenient to mention that as a youth, he was trained as a Pharisee. This is curious for us in part because the writing of this last document 
only it comes after the Pharisees had gained prominence and power um, in Roman-controlled Palestine in the late first century CE. So it seems to be a matter of convenience then that in this historical context, Joseph remembers, quote-unquote, that he all along was a Pharisee. Now, the Mishnah and the Talmud uh, are also helpful historical sources, but they too have their problems. These two texts were written at least several generations after the time of Jesus, and so they are not the most uh, proximate historical source when it comes to understanding the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, in, the, in the life of the early church. Furthermore, the two major figures associated with the Pharisees in these sources, namely Hillel and Shammai never call themselves Pharisees, but only centuries later are called Pharisees by other writers. Are Hillel and Shammai actually Pharisees? We're not sure. I tend to think that they were, but in either case, we must realize that that the writings of early rabbinic Judaism are definitely cast, uh, uh, definitely are looking back on an earlier period and framing that history in light of later theological developments. Finally, then, there's the Dead Sea Scrolls. Most scholars believe that these sectarian writings are to be associated with the Essenes, though though some believe that they should also be associated with the Sadducees. These texts refer to, quote, seekers after smooth things. And while this reference is somewhat ambiguous, most think that this is in reference to the Pharisees. Now, to be called a seeker after smooth things was not a good title. It probably referred to how the Pharisees adapted Torah to fit the needs of contemporary life, or perhaps it is in reference to the fact that the Pharisees are not revolutionaries and try to be more accommodating to Roman rule. In either case, the folks living at Qumran were uncomfortable with the Pharisees and saw them as adversaries, both practically, politically, and theologically. So again, when we read the Dead Sea Scrolls, we must take those writings with a grain of salt a grain of salt in terms of them offering us true and balanced historical insight. Nevertheless, as I said, we can glean important information about the Pharisees and the Sadducees from these sources, and I want to just highlight a few points of conclusion. For one, let's look at the names Pharisee and Sadducee. The name Pharisee comes from the verb in Aramaic and Hebrew, parash, meaning to separate or to make distinct. And this name was likely given to the Pharisees by others because they saw that the Pharisees separated themselves from the general population in order to live a life that was particularly pious and holy. Though it would probably go too far to see the Pharisees as living in some sort of monistic, monastic existence, separated from society as a whole, nevertheless, the Pharisees were distinct in terms of their faithfulness and their piety. Membership among the Pharisee sect was, uh, was, by, was, was voluntary and, th- and thus not passed on from family to family. And so, at least in theory, anyone or someone from any level of society could join the ranks of the Pharisees. The name Sadducee is, is likely derived from one of two sources. One possibility is that the name is tied to the name of a chief priest from the time of Solomon. Um, there, um, we learn of when David establishes the monarchy, he had two chief priests that shared control of the, of the Jerusalem temple. There was Zadok and there was Abiathar. Now, when David dies and there, there is a power struggle for who will gain control, the priest Zadok backs Solomon in his uh, camp, whereas the other priest, Abiathar, 
backs Adonijah, another son of David who was vying for the throne. Well, as you know, Solomon is the successor to David, and as a result, uh, he does away with all of Adonijah's followers, including the priest Abiathar. And from that point forward then, Zadok and his descendants became the chief priests, the top-level priests in the Jerusalem temple. So then, in appealing to Zadok through their name, the Sadducees make a claim to ancient authority in the priesthood. Another possibility is that the name Sadducee is derived from the adjective tzaddik, which means righteous ones. And here, this would indicate that the Sadducees have a reputation, at least, for being righteous in the manner of their priestly service. Now, let's fill out their profiles a little bit further. First, the Pharisees. Josephus traces the origins of the Pharisees to the, to the mid-2nd century BCE, to the time of the Hasmonean rulers. At this point, the Hasmonean rulers, who were descendants of Judas Maccabeus, tried to combine the chief political office of the nation with the high priesthood. Initially, the Pharisees were heavily involved with Hasmonean rule, but over time they began to critique the Hasmoneans for combining the political office with the high priestly office. In fact, one Pharisee um, goes so far as to, as to challenge a Hasmonean ruler to give up the high priesthood and leave it to the seed of Aaron. Well, as you might expect, this doesn't sit well with the Hasmoneans who want to consolidate the power of the temple with the power of the monarchy. And so through time then, they eventually expel the Pharisees uh, and they instead turn to another Jewish group for support, namely the Sadducees. Now, over the next 200 years or so, the Pharisees are reinstated to political favor, once again lose favor, and then again are reinstated. And this back-and-forth movement uh, of the favor of the Pharisees versus Sadducees continues through many generations. And it might remind us a little bit of our contemporary setting, where control of the Senate or even the White House shifts back and forth between Republicans and Democrats. By the Herodian period, the Pharisees had fully transitioned from being interested in politics to being solely interested in piety. Up through the time of Jesus then, the Pharisees had little political interest. In fact, the New Testament confirms this understanding. Jesus condemns the Pharisees for a variety of things, but never for militarism or collusion with the Romans. This is especially clear in the fact that the Pharisees play no role in Jesus' condemnation and passion. Now, in terms of their practices and beliefs, the Pharisees recognized that the law of Moses was not a precise guidebook for all aspects of everyday life. Rather, the law of Moses laid out principles from which everyday practices could be derived. But even still, such practices were the result of careful interpretation. And it fell then to the, to the Pharisees to explain such matters to the people. For instance, the Ten Commandments clearly says that you should honor the Sabbath, but it does not specify how exactly you should do this. You needed someone to explain it. What actually constituted work and what did rest look like? And again, this was the business of the Pharisees as teachers to explain the application of the law of Moses to everyday life. This is why the Pharisees are said to, quote, sit on Moses' seat in Matthew 23, and it's why they're often concerned with matters of interpretation. The Pharisees like to be called rabbi, which simply means my great one or even my teacher. 
The Pharisees, as mentioned earlier, are known for their piety. They fast, they keep Sabbath, and they tithe. They are associated with a synagogue rather than a temple, meaning that they are more concerned with teaching Torah than with priestly aristocracy. The Pharisees are the leading sect in Judaism, and they are most likely the predecessors of what we know as rabbinical Judaism. Though it should be noted uh, that despite the fact that there's a lot of, a lot of commonalities between members of the, set, uh, the Pharisee uh, group, there were divisions within the Pharisees as well. Some associated with the school of Hillel, and others were associated with the school of Shammai. We might understand this sort of dynamic in light of contemporary pot- politics. There are Bernie Sanders Democrats, and there are Hillary Clinton Democrats. And despite the real differences between these two different groups, they still share much in common in terms of an overall political party. Well, much of the same is probably true of the Pharisees and the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. So the general picture then of the Pharisees is this. They are a group characterized by a distinct way of living, a strong concern for both correct belief and correct practice, and they are involved in prompting religious revival and reform. They have a concern with how best to adapt and understand the law of Moses. Josephus tells us that they are affectionate with one another and cultivate harmonious relationships within their community. They exemplify faithful living, they reject wealth and luxury, and they show respect for their elders. Thus, from our non-biblical sources then, we get a rather positive and complementary picture of what the Pharisees actually are like. In fact, if we took this general sense of the Pharisees and removed from it any uh, qualifying label, we might well think that these characteristics fit Jesus or John the Baptist or even the Christian disciples. So again, it's important to note that from the outside of the New Testament, we have a very complementary portrait of what the Pharisees actually are like. Let's turn then to the Sadducees. We know comparatively less about the Sadducees than we do the Pharisees, in part because we have no direct writings from them. It's also the case that some of the non-biblical historical sources we have about the Sadducees paint them in a rather negative light. Josephus, for instance, as a Pharisee, is no fan of the Sadducees, and he refers to them as, as being boorish and rude in their behavior. The Mishnah is not a fan of the Sadducees either, and they describe the Sadducees as being ignorant of the laws and bordering on heresy. As we saw, the Sadducees trace their lineage to an ancient chief priest from the time of Solomon. However, not all Sadducees were chief priests, and it should be noted that the Zadokites, whom they trace their origins to, had already lost control of the high priesthood since the time of the Hasmoneans. So while it is right to associate the Sadducees with the chief priests, not all chief priests were Sadducees. The Sadducean party was generally the party of the wealthy aristocrats and were invested in preserving the status quo and protecting the interests of what we today would call the 1%. The the basis of power of the Sadducean party is in Jerusalem and in the temple, which means they held a position of central power in Judean society. But it also means that after the Romans destroyed the temple and sacked Jerusalem in the late 60s CE, the Sadducees have no more power. In fact, it might even be the case that the Sadducees cease to exist. 
In comparison to the Pharisees, the Sadducees were more religiously conservative in terms of their attitudes towards Scripture. They restricted authority to the written law and rejected the authority of the oral law, which is associated with the Pharisaical tradition. Josephus also remarks that they deny the resurrection. This too is clear in the Gospels. In Mark 12, 18-23, the Sadducees try to trap Jesus on this very issue. If you recall, they pose a question. They say, suppose there is a Liverite marriage context in which a woman has been married to several brothers. Whose wife would she be in the resurrection? Now, we must keep in mind here that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, and so they don't really care about Jesus' answer. They simply want to trip Jesus up. They want to expose the fallacy of his teaching by capturing him and tripping him up on this exegetical matter. But as is often the case, Jesus finesses the question, and he responds that those who rise from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. In other words, the question of the Sadducees pose is wrong-headed in the first place. Thus, when it comes to the characterization of the Sadducees, the non-biblical sources share much in common with the biblical sources. The Sadducees are not painted in a positive light and rather are there to trip up the disciples and trap Jesus in his teachings. And I want to suggest that this characterization of the Sadducees then differs from that of the Pharisees, about whom we've already discussed and who are much more positively shaped in the non-biblical historical sources. However, this poses an interesting question in terms of the portrait of these figures in the New Testament. The relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees, or even the disciples and the Pharisees, gains far more attention in the New Testament. The Sadducees are referenced only 14 times in the New Testament, but the Pharisees are referenced 94 times. Why, if the, Sar- if the Sadducees are portrayed more negatively, is the New Testament ultimately more interested in the Pharisees? In short, it has to do with relevance. Recall that the Sadducees lost power and were almost completely non-existent after 70 CE. In contrast, by the end of the first century, the Pharisees had grown in influence and ultimately gave birth to rabbinic Judaism. So the relationship of Christianity to Pharisaical Judaism continued to be relevant and in need of reflection in the early church long after the influence of the Sadducees had died out. This then might well be the reason why the New Testament goes on goes to such great lengths to differentiate between the Pharisees' views and Jesus' views. Sometimes it is those whom we are most alike that we make the sharpest distinctions between. Still, I want to argue that the presentation of the Pharisees in the New Testament deserves a second look. I contend, in fact, that our negative preconceptions about the Pharisees filter our interpretation. And in fact, we often assume the New Testament texts are speaking of the Pharisees in a more dismissive fashion than they sometimes actually are. Now, I'm not saying here that the New Testament portrays the Pharisees in a uniformly positive light. I simply wish to highlight the fact that sometimes our preconceived notions about the Pharisees as villains makes it difficult for us to clearly see how the New Testament is portraying the Pharisees. And I think the portrayal of the Pharisees in the New Testament is often more complex and nuanced than our own views of who these ancient figures were. Let's look at just two examples that I think help prove this point. First is Jesus' parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let's begin with the text itself. 
from Luke 18, 10-14. The parable goes like this. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down, here's the explanation, I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, on initial read, and in light of our already negative caricature of the Pharisees, our sympathies, I think, tend toward the tax collector. The meaning of the parable, so it seems, is that it is better to be a repentant tax collector than a self-righteous Pharisee who fasts and, and tithes. Or maybe, rather, the meaning is that it is better to be a Christian saved by grace than a Jew who tries to justify himself through right behavior. You'll find these sorts of interpretations all through Christian commentaries on the Gospel of Luke and in many, many sermons that deal with this particular Pharisee. This interpretation is understandable, at least at some level, because it is reinforced by the preface Luke adds to the parable. In verse 9, Luke says that this parable was told to, quote, some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Again, our assumption here is then is that this parable was told to the Pharisees as a way of correcting their belief and their hypocritical self-righteousness. But I want to suggest that there is a, a problem with this mode of interpretation. First, recall that the Pharisee looks with contempt on the tax collector and says in verse 11, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But for many Christians, we end up saying something very similar to ourselves. Thank you, God, that I'm not like this Pharisee. In other words, when we identify with the repentant tax collector, when we see this as a parable that contrasts the Christian who is saved by grace and the Jew who tries to prove themselves by work, by works or rituals or tithing or fasting, we end up falling into the very trap that the parable sets. In other words, we become the Pharisee when we say, thank you, God, that I'm not like this Pharisee or I'm not like this Jewish person. So we must exhibit then great caution in drawing this conclusion, for in fact, the parable is, to ex- is meant to expose in us this sort of attitude. But there are other problems with this interpretation as well, and it has to do with the specific wording of the text. Some commentators, for instance, note uh, in explaining why the Pharisee should be viewed negatively, note that the Pharisee here is said to be standing by himself as he prays. And these commentators extrapolate from this observation and conclude that this is a sign of aloofness or standoffishness. But this conclusion is purely speculative, and the text itself does not question where or how he is standing. And in either case, the tax collector is also said to be, quote, standing far off. And so if we think this is reason uh, to critique the Pharisee, then it is all the more reason to critique the tax collector. 
Commentators also question the content of the Pharisee's prayer. It has been characterized as being disingenuous, self-deceptive, and self-reliant. But if we look again carefully at the wording, we recognize that this prayer is actually a prayer of thanksgiving. The Pharisee is not saying uh, that he himself has made himself better than these other figures. Rather, he's recognizing that God, in God's providence, has put him in a place of favor. And that as an expression of thanks for that favor, the Pharisee responds with fasting and tithing. This sort of prayer, in fact, was actually uh, quite common in first century Judaism. From the pages of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have this common prayer from Qumran, which says, I give you thanks, Lord, because you did not make my lot fall in the congregation of deceit, nor have you placed my allotted territory in the council of hypocrites, but you have called me to your kindness and to your forgiveness. So this was then a somewhat common prayer, but one that ultimately uh, gives thanks to God for one's position in life. I want to submit that this prayer is not all that different from the very common and well-loved Protestant saying, There, but for the grace of God, go I. Both statements recognize that where we find ourselves in life is a direct result of something God has done and not a result of something we have done. So even though I might not suggest that we model this sort of prayer today, on theological grounds, what the Pharisee is saying is not objectionable at all. Now, all of these important caveats aside, the conclusion of the story in verse 14 still seems to bring us back once again to a negative evaluation of the Pharisee. Jesus says, quote, I tell you, this man, meaning here the tax collector, went down to his home justified rather than the other. So it seems as if the original reading might be correct after all. The repentant tax collector, not the self-righteous Pharisee, is found to be in a right relationship with God. But here we must be mindful of an important translation issue. The, transla- the NRSV translation reads, quote, This man went down to his home justified rather than the other, thus creating a contrast between the two figures. Every English translation that I know of does the same. In fact, some make the contrast even sharper. Consider the Good News translation, which reads, quote, The tax collector, not the Pharisee, was in the right with God. Or also you might consider Eugene Peterson's, Peterson's The Message paraphrase. He says, quote, This man, not the other, went home made right with God. But the Greek here is much more open-ended and in fact su- suggests a very different conclusion about what Jesus is saying about these two figures. The word translated as rather than by the NRSV in Greek is para. It's a preposition whose most basic meaning is, quote, alongside. In fact, this is the root in the word parable, which if you recall means to set side by side. So the Greek doesn't contrast the justified uh, state of the tax collector with the unjustified state of the Pharisee. But instead, what the Greek says is that the tax collector was justified alongside or along with the Pharisee, not rather than 
the Pharisee. It was a both-and situation, not an either-or. And this reading would stress the fact that the temple was a place for all people, and it would emphasize the expansive nature of God's forgiveness. The point is that both men go away justified. The earlier, the earlier, an original reader of Luke's gospel would have assumed that the Pharisee was justified. The point of the story is to show that the repentant tax collector was made right with God as well. But yet there's even a more provocative reading of this story. The Greek preposition para, which I mentioned earlier, can also mean because of or on account of. And in this reading, the tax collector goes away justified, not rather than the Pharisee, and not just alongside the Pharisee, but the tax collector goes away justified because of the Pharisee. Now, this might seem like a strange reading, but keep in mind that there was a belief in early Judaism, and this belief can be found throughout the whole of the Old Testament, in the collective nature of God's covenant with the people. In this view, bad deeds of one person affected the whole community, and conversely, the good deeds of one person could have a positive impact on the whole community. It's not so much uh, of a system of justification by works, but nevertheless, there was a belief that the faithfulness of the ancestors or anyone pious in the community could be transferred to those who came after. So it is possible that what is being said here is that the tax collector walks away justified precisely because of the secondary and communal effects of the Pharisees' good deeds. This reading of the story anticipates Jesus' atonement. Just as we are made right with God by virtue of Christ's faithfulness, so too is the tax collector made right by the Pharisees' faith. The point I'm trying to emphasize here is that the original Greek of this parable shows that the Pharisee and the tax collector are not so much being contrasted, at least uh, in terms of their state of being in a right relationship with God. Rather, in the, in the Greek of the, this parable, it is a both-and situation. The Pharisee and the tax collector are both found to be justified in God's sight. Or maybe even the, fa- the tax collector is found to be justified because of the Pharisee. In either case, this reading of the Greek preposition, which is far more accurate from a grammatical perspective, casts the Pharisee in a much more positive light. The common English translation rather than that we encounter in the NRSV and other sources, I believe, reflects prior conclusions about who the Pharisees are, and thus they shade our interpretation through this very translation, and in doing so, they reinforce negative views of the Pharisees. Now, while it is clearly the case that this parable uh, lifts up the tax collector for being humble, it at no point denounces the Pharisee based on the fact that he stood apart, or based on the content of his prayer, or even based on the fact of his justification with God. Any New Testament reader from the time of Jesus and in the early church would have recognized that the Pharisee would have, of course, been found to be right in God's eyes. What would have been surprising then is to find that the tax collector could also come to be in good standing with God as well. Now, the second example I want to turn to in the New Testament has to do with Paul's Jewish background. The New Testament unambiguously connects Paul to the Pharisees prior to his Damascus Road conversion. We learn of this clearly in Philippians 3, 5, and 6. There we read, quote, 
If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. This is Paul speaking. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, typically, we take these references as indicating Paul's pre-Christian resume or CV. He was a Hebrew or Hebrew from the tribe of Benjamin, and according to the law, a Pharisee. In other words, this is a description of how Paul understood his identity prior to his conversion. He was a Pharisee, and then, on the road to Damascus, he became a Christian. His encounter with the risen Christ breathed life into his empty and overly formal religiosity. It broke the chains of his hypocrisy and wooden legalism, and it reoriented his self-righteousness toward a belief in Christ's righteousness. This is the typical view of Paul's Jewish background and what happened to him on the road to Damascus. To be sure, Paul's Damascus Road experience was profoundly transformative. He did, after all, go from persecuting the church to risking his own life for the advancement of the gospel. But nevertheless, many of these assumptions that we just named about the nature of Paul's conversion are built on negative caricatures of the Pharisees and not a close reading of the New Testament text itself. Let me mention a few points very briefly. First, consider Acts 23.6. There, in front of a tribunal, Paul says, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It's notable here that the Greek verb is a present active indicative verb. In Greek, Paul is saying, ego eimi, words that that echo the famous statements, I am statements of Jesus found in the Gospel of John. Paul didn't say, I was a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, and now I am a Christian. Rather, he is saying, as a Christian, I am a Pharisee. He is a follower of Christ who hasn't by any means given up his identity as a Pharisee. In fact, note his logic here. He is standing trial for belief in the resurrection of the dead. And recall that the Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead in contrast to the Sadducees. And so in a way then, Paul is justifying his belief in Christ by appealing to a core doctrine of his Pharisaical background. Far from denouncing his association with the Pharisees, Paul here is embracing it. And it is important to note that this is after his Damascus Road experience. Paul does not cease being a Pharisee once he's encountered the resurrected Christ. In fact, there's no reason from the New Testament to suspect that being a Pharisee was incompatible with being a follower of Jesus. In fact, in Acts 12, we learn that some Christians are from the sect of the Pharisees. So what we see here in Paul is not a conversion from Pharisaical Judaism to Christianity, but rather a reorientation of his loyalties to Christ. But that reorientation does not demand that he ceases being a Pharisee. Then there's also Acts 22.3. There Paul uh, mentions that he has been trained under Gamaliel, a prominent Pharisee from Jerusalem, well known for his teaching. Once again, Paul, we shouldn't understand as Paul, Paul making a radical break from his teacher Gamaliel after his conversion. And in fact, we might suspect that this teacher actually prepared Paul to be a follower of Christ. Consider Acts 5. 
There Gamaliel stands up before the Sanhedrin, and he advises his fellow Sanhedrin members to leave the apostles alone and not to persecute them. He says, look, if their undertaking is from men, then they certainly will fail and they will be wiped out. But if their undertaking is in fact from God, you won't be able to stop them. And furthermore, you might even be seen as opposing God through your persecution. The Sanhedrin then heeds his advice and the apostles are let go. Here, a Pharisee, Gamaliel, comes to the rescue of the Christians before the Sadducees. If Gamaliel had the sort of influence on Paul, then known as Saul, as we think, then it might well be that Paul's ability to receive the experience of the resurrected Christ, to internalize that as a conversion of his heart, and to reorient his own mission, might in fact have been cultivated through his pharisaical upbringing. Finally, let's, re- let's turn back then to Philippians 3 and ask, what does Paul actually mean when he says, as to the law, a Pharisee? Most Christians see this as a bad thing, not as a good thing. That is to say, Paul, prior to his experience of the resurrected Christ, was only committed to the, the legal and hypocritical and self-righteous following of the law. But I want to suggest that's our negative caricature kicking in. Rather, for, for the original reader of Paul, to suggest that as to the law he was a Pharisee would have underscored the fact of Paul's impeccable piety, his unwavering devotion to the law. Uh, and remember here, law is not just ritual law, but it's all of the commandments of Moses, which include what we would call today ethics and social justice. So in saying that as to the law, he was a Pharisee, Paul is clearly saying that he is on the side of an ethical life, a life oriented around social justice, a life that takes the word of God seriously. And that would have been a profoundly good thing, not a bad thing. But it also means in saying that as to the law, he was a Pharisee. It also means that he is a rigorous teacher of the law, able to interpret and explain how Old Testament principles inform daily life today. And none of this, again, is something Paul that ever gives up. In fact, much of Pauline literature is marked by his exegetical acumen, his ability to bridge, build, uh, uh, to construct bridges between the writings of the Old Testament and new life in Christ. Paul then, as we see him in the New Testament, is being a good Pharisee. He's not leaving those characteristics uh, behind, but is essentially tapping into them and using them to positively influence and shape his mission. Let me then offer just a quick word of conclusion. In many Christian circles today, I have come across the tendency of one group of believers labeling another group of believers as modern-day Pharisees. There's even a recent book published uh, by Baker Publishing House called Accidental Pharisee. The subtitle is Avoiding Pride, Exclusivity, and the Other Dangers of an Overzealous Faith. This book is written by a popular evangelical megachurch pastor from California, and it reminds us about how God desires obedience and faithfulness and compassion rather than pride, exclusivity, and overzealous commitment to the law. Well, on that score, I agree. God does desire obedience and faithfulness and compassion. The problem is the Pharisees would be first in line with affirming this very same thing. 
What happens in this book and in others like it is that the Pharisees become a powerful accusatory label. And as with most labels, it functions not only to divide communities, this believer from that believer, this side of the church from that side of the church, but it also distorts the truth. We must remember that the Pharisees are not as bad as we think, and we must be mindful of the danger of dismissing others based on differences in theology and practice, denouncing them with labels that are based in misunderstandings. In attempting to denounce other people with the label Pharisee, we not only reveal our own misunderstanding of the New Testament, but we also expose the judgmental, hypocritical, and self-righteous nature of our own hearts. Thank you.